Welcome to Sunny in Seattle with your host, Sunny Joy. And coming up on today's show, Sunny's guest is physician-turned-relationship and intimacy expert, Dr. Alexandra Stockwell. The two of them will be discussing her latest book, Uncompromising Intimacy. So tune in and learn how to turn your unfulfilling marriage or relationship into a deeply satisfying and passionate partnership. And now I welcome your host for the day, Sunny Joy. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy McMillan, and we're here every Friday from 9 to 10 a.m. on Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m. KKNW in Seattle and 103.3 KPCA in Petaluma, bringing you amazing guests and resources that will help you create a life filled with joy, peace, freedom, and purpose. It is radio that positively shines. And if you can't catch the show live, you can always access the show archives. Those are found at 1150kknw.com, as well as on iTunes, and Podcast One. And you can find out more about me through my website, which is goldenoversoul.com. Uh, so, Benny, happy Friday. How are you? Hey, thanks. Uh, back at you. You know, today is a good show for love, exciting <laughs> yeah. and new. <laughs> How's that going in that department for you, Benny? I think it's all right. <laughs> hey, this is 2020. I'm ready now. Let's do this. Okay, okay good. Let's do this. Oh, awesome. Well, actually, our guest today has been on the show before, but she has had a new book come out since that last time, which we're going to be talking about today. Um, her name is Alexandra Stockwell. She is a physician-turned-relationship and intimacy expert who believes the key to passion, fulfillment, and intimacy isn't compromise. It's being unwilling to compromise. So we'll have to ask her about that. A wife of 24 years and mother of four, Alexandra guides men and women towards the freedom to be themselves because it's when we feel loved for who we are that our relationships become juicy, nourishing, and deeply satisfying. Through conscious partnerships, she helps couples infuse pleasure and purpose into all aspects of life, from the daily grind of running a household to clear and intimate communication to ecstatic experiences in the bedroom. She is the author of the book that we'll be discussing today, the brand new book, Uncompromising Intimacy, Turn Your Unfulfilling Marriage into a Deeply Satisfying and Passionate Partnership. Um, and you can find out more about her through her website, which is alexandrastockwell.com. That's alexandrastockwell.com. Uh, Dr. Stockwell, welcome back to Sunny in Seattle. Thank you, Sunny. It's so good to come play with you and Benny again. Yay. <laughs> and now we have this beautiful book to talk about. Um, and I I'm, I'm just want to jump in with the title, um, Uncompromising Intimacy. What does that term mean and, and why uncompromising? Well, I, I, it might be worldwide. I'm not in a position to know, but certainly in the West, the most common relationship advice given ever is in order to have a good relationship, you really need to learn to compromise. And compromise is the name of the game. And if you want a great marriage, you have to be good at compromising. And I just completely disagree with that. I think there is such a cost to compromising and it means we hold ourselves back and withhold things that are really important in order to accommodate our partner. But in the end, we don't end up accommodating our partner because they're with someone who's holding things back. And I think the really significant thing is how you do anything is how you do everything. And it's you navigate your relationship by compromising 
accommodating on things that are important to you in daily life in terms of where you live and what kind of food you eat. And I don't know, there are so many ways you can compromise. If you do that in your daily life, mm -hmm. when it comes time to get into a more romantic mode and in the bedroom, we don't have some special switch that we can then flip to be fully expressed and fully ourselves and connected with our desire and able to communicate well because we're in the habit of compromising. So I think really the key, which is why I've named my, my book this way, is to learn to be uncompromising in intimacy and also throughout the relationship. Yeah, and I think this is so important. There were some statistics in your book, and I just want to throw these out there. Um, I compiled a few as I was going through, and it really can be disheartening. Um, so I'll just, the, let's see. We've got um, the, the, the Durex company, which is a condom company, interviewed 29,000 couples and found that 54% were dissatisfied with the quality of their relationships. We've got other research showing that up to 84% of married couples aren't happy with the intimacy in their relationships. We've got 25% of couples staying together for the sake of children alone. And this one was a new one for me. 70% of traditional couples, couples therapy is unsuccessful. Um, so I guess reading those in your book just reminded me, and especially, you know, this is the work that I have done for the last several years myself. I am, it doesn't surprise me anymore how many people come in my office and say that they are very unhappy in, unfulfilled by, unsatisfied with their marriage um, and or long-term relationship. Um, and I know that this is, so this is very, just to put that out there, this is very important work that you are doing and it didn't just become work that you're doing. This was your own story and story of transformation. So you have lived this to give it. Um, can we talk about that a little bit? Like the story, the background of leading up to you being a physician now turned relationship and intimacy expert. Yeah, we can. And, uh, one of the elements of my story has me really compassionate and understanding of other couples because everything looked great on the outside. And for me, and I think this is true for others too, as someone who was really competent in my life, I was a practicing physician. I had what by all outward appearances looked like a good, healthy, stable marriage. I am used to doing well with what I put my mind and heart to in school and in life. And it's very confronting to feel so far from masterful in the area of relationships when, when moving through the world with competence otherwise. And so I think that's a really important part of our conversation. And it's one of the things that I hear with all of those statistics, because if the research isn't done, and there's not a whole lot of research done in this arena compared to other areas, but if the research isn't done, it's very easy for an individual or a couple to think their situation is somewhat unique and that the grass is greener in other bedrooms. And it's often really not. So that was true for me, for sure. Um, we were a nice married couple, same values, 
little to no conflict in our marriage and aligned with supporting one another's careers. We didn't have difficulty making financial decisions, raising children. We now have four. And really, actually, I always had friends who either single or sometimes also uh, who were with partners who looked up to and were inspired by our relationship. I knew what they meant because we were really bonded. In fact, maybe on this show I can say I once had, um, when we were working with a couples coach, he said, you two seem so connected in the upper chakras, but we have some work to do in the lower chakras. <laughs> I pulled that quote and was going to ask you about that very thing. Yes. So I know this audience is very familiar with chakras, but just can you say more about what that meant for you all? Yeah. So we had a really strong, good, reliable, comforting, supportive heart connection when we were engaging intellectually. Sure, you know, we we had differences of opinion and things to work out and things to learn from one another, but really fundamentally we saw eye to eye. But when it came time to sensuality and um, really being with one another in our bodies and instead of being oriented to being productive or even loving to be oriented to the kind of time-stopping ecstasy and exploration in the bedroom there, we didn't really know where to begin. And the particular context of our relationship is we met the first week of medical school. And so between medical school and then residency training and having two of our four children during that time, we had our attention on a lot of other things. There were, there were a few years when we were both working 60 to 100 hours a week. And mm. so we built our relationship on collaboration and a common vision and wanting to raise a family together. And we did not build our relationship on endless Friday night into Saturday into Sunday in bed together. And um, people often say, oh, you know, I, I wish the sex were the way it used to be. Well, I don't wish that. And I actually find there are plenty of couples who don't wish that either because we learned to really be partners in life before we even had the time or the space or the courage to develop the same kind of uncompromising ways when it comes to desire and sensual fulfillment. Yes. And, and so there was a point where you had a bit of, you woke up to that thing that you were missing. Of course, that therapist pointed that out, but there were other things. And I particularly would love to, I, this is part of your story that I was not familiar with that, that, um, there, of course, there was some growing hollowness, some realization that you were putting other people's needs before your own. But there was a moment on your daughter's ninth birthday that really hit you hard. Um, can you tell us about the lead up to you shifting things to making the transformation in, in, into? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. So I was used to overriding my own feelings and desires. I never would have described it that way that, that I wouldn't have. But 
I was used to staying up until my studying was done. I was used to working 36 hour shifts in the hospital. Like I knew how to prioritize the tasks ahead of me instead of if I felt hungry or even needed to go to the bathroom, I just overrode that in order to <laughs> take care of what was in front of me. And um, I didn't really honestly see any problem with that. I felt kind of proud of how good I was at tending other people's needs. And my daughter, she's the oldest, and she was this radiant, just joy-filled, feminine, glorious girl. And on her ninth birthday, she just was so radiant and happy and kind of gently charismatic, I'll say. And I looked at her and on the one hand, I was thrilled. I mean, it's a wonderful thing to have a happy child. And on the other, I felt internally like the bottom dropped out and I was just completely freaked out. I didn't indicate it at all. Nobody else knew what was happening, but I really felt in a kind of foggy free fall because it was so disorienting to see how joyful she was. It, it was wonderful and easy to be a witness to that and celebrate it when she was six months old and 18 months old and three years old. But at nine, you can really start to see womanhood beginning to emerge and to see all that joy with womanhood beginning to emerge. It literally felt disorienting because I couldn't relate. Mm. I had no inner reference point to that. And it, um, it's not that I was comparing myself to my daughter because it, there was no competition to it, but in witnessing her, it revealed the contrast to how basically relatively dehydrated my feminine energy was inside me. And I wasn't depressed. I wasn't... It, it wasn't anything apparent to other people, but inside I knew that I didn't have access to the joy that she accessed. And in that moment, actually more than what that lack meant for me personally, because I'd made a good life without it, what really hit me is that if I didn't learn how to access my own joy and really celebrate being in a woman's body and connected with my desire in a very uncomplicated way, I'll say, I needed to access that or she would lose what she had because there was no way that she could live at home. She was nine, so if she left home at 18, there was no way she could live another nine years and sustain all of her radiance in the face of a mother modeling something so much more internally dehydrated or stale. And this is all very, very subtle, but for me, it was super real. Yes. And I want to actually read a quote from the book where you describe this happening. 
Um, and I, I just, I'm pointing this out because this, your book, your work, and I think what we are moving towards as a species is not just tolerable, not just surviving, but actually what is the potential that we have to have these thriving lives full of, I always say this at the beginning of the show, peace, joy, freedom, purpose, expansion, meaning, all of these things. And I think you identifying this so beautifully, I, I it just, I want to just share this quote. Okay. So, uh, Dr. Stockwell writes that I realize that despite being a competent, warm and loving mother, that if I was not truly in touch with my own joy and delight in being alive, it wouldn't be possible for my daughter to sustain her radiance for another nine years of living at home. It would be too hard for her to do so in the face of my dialed down vibrancy. Honestly, I had never thought of myself as having a dialed down presence because I laughed often and I enjoyed my life. But in that moment, I saw that I had disconnected from the pleasure of being a woman, of having a female body. I had cut myself off from being a radiant feminine woman. And so at that moment, you embarked on a journey um, that we, if we can continue on, what happened next uh, to really to open up to that radiant feminine woman, feminine woman that you are. <laughs> yeah, I will tell the journey, but I kind of want to give the punchline first. Oh, yes, please. And that is that having a really great relationship, I didn't know it at the time, but I do now, is a completely learnable skill. And I'm just so fascinated with that. It's it's related to your work too, where you have such a profound spirituality. And I think often when it comes to spirituality or relationships, people think, you know, you just have it. And you are such an incredible teacher and guide for people to learn how to really uh, access their spirituality and their internal world. And I feel like that is absolutely possible in relationships too. So I'm going to share what I did and how I come to that conclusion. But I think it's so important to emphasize that it is a learnable skill. And so, thank you for saying that, Alexandra. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So all right, so I was clear that I wanted to figure this out. In fact, I was a little bit analytical about it, except that I had <laughs> no idea where to begin. And in fact, this is something else I say in the book, that mammals learn through imitation. And while we are all kinds of things, human beings are still mammals. And we don't really have much to imitate in this realm, much worthy of imitation. And so I looked around and there wasn't anybody having the kind of relationship that I wanted that I could just go to and ask questions. But I took um, a NIA class, the kind of movement, and I started going to personal growth trainings. I really, in a way for the first time, gave myself permission to just do things on a whim. I don't mean like going out for dinner on a whim. I mean, signing up for a training on a whim without really knowing exactly how it fit into my goals or my current life circumstances. I just, I, I let myself have some beginner's mind. And it, actually it was very funny because I, I took this uh, dance training and the teacher 
spoke about something and put it down. She said, you know, this woman's empowerment. She just put it down. But I wrote it down to go look it up online because I just thought, oh, this sounds really awesome. And so when I did that, I landed myself at the School of Womanly Arts in New York City. Regina Thomas Hour. I love her. Absolutely. Yes. Mama Gina. She she used to only be Mama Gina, but now she's really bringing more of herself. And so she switched over to Regina. But when I was there, it was Mama Gina. And um That was such a radical experience for me because I had always been like attracted to intellectual considerations and depth and meaning. And I got into some superficial pink boa, (laughs) what kind of lip gloss do you wear stuff, which at the time... Like, it would have been easier for me to assist a cardiac surgery. That was something (laughs) I've done many times. But to, like, be chatting with a bunch of women about which was my favorite lip gloss, I was like, how do you find your favorite lip gloss, you know? Do do you have to, like, buy 50? And how do you research that and come up with a favorite? Like, and what are the variables that, that lead is it how it feels, how it looks like, anyway, it was a whole new world. And even though I'm talking about the lip gloss, cause that was kind of a thing for me, <laughs> I really was more comfortable in a cardiac surgery, but I also, um, just absorbed so much from being in a community of women enjoying being women and exploring what it means to be a woman And that really was so pivotal and also a launching pad. And I also did spiritual trainings. Like I I couldn't really go too far in one direction or I felt like it would be incomplete for me. So I I really, as I say, I explored spirit. I, I did spiritual trainings and personal growth and the school of womanly arts and dancing and gained a lot of courage to, first express things to myself about what I wanted and what wasn't really working for me. And then that was harder. And then also difficult, but less difficult than expressing it to myself was finding a way to say it to my husband. And um, at this point, we moved from Massachusetts to rural Kansas for two years, and then on to the San Francisco Bay Area, where we now live and so along the way in Kansas there weren't too many opportunities and so I read a lot of different books and memoirs of um, Carolyn Muir who's who's important in bringing Tantra I read her memoir and uh, I just looked for what I could find and in the end when I had that experience on my daughter's ninth birthday, I didn't actually know that I was going to end up exploring and actualizing and enjoying my own sensuality and sexuality so much. Like for me, joy was, was a feeling. I didn't, I didn't know how embodied my journey would end up being, but when I took a 
uh, training in sensuality, it turned out to also be a coach training. And I didn't care about that. There were a number of us who were just doing it in order to have the experience and growth for ourselves and our own relationships. But I thought, well, you know, I'm in this. Let me, I didn't even know what a coach was, but I'll go to the lab and see about it. And from that first moment, I just fell in love with coaching, which has created an opportunity for me to continue to learn more about myself and other people and sensuality in general, because as a coach, I end up hearing really tender, intimate things about other couples, which honestly, I share my stories with them and they share their stories with me and everybody benefits. Yes. And so it's probably a good time to take our break. So I'll just say, you know, kind of to tease it up for when we come back that you on in going through this journey or going on this journey, you brought this back to your own marriage. You saw the transformation that it could make when you really engaged those lower chakras. And there were some very specific things that you did, which we're going to talk about, which were, which are all in your book, uncompromising intimacy, which is now available. Um, for sale. It's a brand new release. But um, I do also want to say one of my favorite things that I want, I would love to hear you talk about um, in bringing this back, uh, because these are very tangible things that you did that other people can do. Um, and it involves for you, particularly the one I want to mention is a French apron and an experiment you did in your kitchen during dinner time <laughs> with your family. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> this really, I mean, here you are, you know, like you said, a 24 year marriage, you've got four kids and still that you brought this aliveness to your relationship. That is something that I know so many people are craving. So we'll talk more about that when we come back from the great, from the break, you are listening to sunny in Seattle. I am your host, sunny joy. I am joined today by physician turned relationship and intimacy expert, Dr. Alexandra Stockwell. And we will be back in just a few. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Hey, sunny in Seattle friends. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that the greatest gifts and synchronicities of my life happened when I started listening to the voice of my soul and let it take the lead. But in a crazy culture and a chaotic world, it can often be difficult to hear that soul voice. And we forget just how powerful that spiritual being inside you really is, which is why I created Soul Digger, a membership community for women and those who identify as women who want to live a soul-driven life. We meet virtually to learn, connect, share, grow, and inspire one another on our spiritual journey. Find out more at my website, goldenoversoul.com. That's goldenoversoul.com. And click on the tab that says, Work With Me. So come get shamelessly spiritual with us in the Soul Digger community, where we mine the true gold that comes from your soul. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz. And this is Climate Connections. Buying insurance is one way to protect something of value, such as a car or a home. And now, businesses in Cancun, Mexico, have insured a coral reef. The coral reef actually reduces the risk of storm impact on the hotels and resorts in Cancun. Dave Jones is with the Nature Conservancy and is the former insurance commissioner of California. He says a healthy coral reef can reduce 97% of a wave's energy as it barrels toward land. So having a healthy coral reef makes a big difference in terms of whether the hurricane or storm is going to destroy your community or not. 
But a reef can also be damaged by a strong storm, which puts communities at greater risk in the future. So in the Mexican state of Quintana Roo, coastal property owners pay a fee that helps fund an insurance policy for the nearby reef and beaches. If a storm of a certain magnitude hits, the policy pays out. The money will be used by local residents trained to remove debris that could cause further damage, reattach coral pieces, and set up nurseries where corals can regrow. Jones says it's a way to pay for the restoration of an ecosystem that can, in turn, protect people from the intensifying effects of global warming. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. Learn more at YaleClimateConnections.org. Sunny in Seattle, radio that positively shines. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover key tar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Sunny in Seattle. I'm your host, Sunny Joy. I am joined today by physician-turned-relationship and intimacy expert, Dr. Alexandra Stockwell. She has a brand new book out, Uncompromising Intimacy, and we are talking about uh, Alexandra's story leading up to the transformation in her own marriage, which then became the work that she now does with couples and and is beautifully uh, displayed in this book that um, is available now on Amazon. Uh, so... Um, Alexandra, let's pick up where we left off here. You were you were going on your own your own journey and didn't even realize how it would really feed into other areas of your life, your work, and and then of course your marriage. Uh, so where would you like to begin again? I did tease up the French apron and the kitchen experiment, but you can pull that in whenever. <laughs> yeah, you know I do want to do that, and I think um, you know earlier at the beginning of the show I talked about how if you're used to compromising in daily life, then it's hard to be full on in the bedroom. And the converse is true too, that as we, my husband and I, and I learned how to really be alive and uncompromising in intimacy, both emotional intimacy and sensual passionate intimacy, that that radiated out into the rest of our lives. And there's one example, which is not in the book that I just want to share, because I think it's particularly interested to your spiritually oriented audience. And that is when my husband and I first started um, doing some sensual practices to be more in our bodies and more connected with one another. At the time we were living in rural Kansas and he's a physician and he used to come home from work at 5.30 p.m., let's say. I don't remember exactly what time. And I noticed at some point that he was coming home 
about 45 minutes earlier regularly. And so I said to him, you know, is your patient load lighter or, you know, are you having more no-shows, you know, where patients don't show up? And so looking for various logistical explanations for why he was done with his workday sooner. And everything I thought of, the answer was, no, no, none of that has changed. And then I realized that it actually coincided. It, it started about six weeks after we started in complete privacy in our bedroom, not even our children, like nobody knew what was happening, but he and I were learning how to connect more deeply, both emotionally and centrally. Mm-hmm. And soon thereafter, he was, I'm, I, this is my explanation that he was able to connect more deeply with everybody else. And so when patients would come in and maybe they would need 30 minutes in order to feel satisfied with the appointment that his capacity to connect and give a sense of feeling seen and understood happened so efficiently that the medical appointments were shorter than they had been. Wow. That, that is interesting and very believable. Yeah. Right. It's the difference between it like someone can spend 30 minutes with a doctor and feel like they didn't, I didn't really get to say what I came to say because I wasn't really heard as opposed to um, five minutes and the interaction is actually really fulfilling. So that was one example. The example that is in my book, which um, I think it's really important and I'm not sure anyone else is talking about it. And that is how to bring whatever is happening in the bedroom into daily life. Like my motivation was that my daughter would experience a radiant, turned on, alive, vibrant woman. And so it was one thing to be able to do that in the bedroom. That definitely had an immediate trickle, ripple effect for me being happier and calmer and all those things. But it still was tiring at the end of the day, cooking dinner, serving dinner, telling my kids, you know, to sit up straight at the table and chew with their mouths closed. And I wanted to really take the drudgery out of that and not to, I think, I think any parent would understand this, not to make those times sexy, but to have more turn on and joie de vivre in them. And so, yeah, I got rid of my very functional apron, which covered a lot of me. So if anything spilled or splattered, I would be, my clothes would be protected. And instead I just completely got rid of it and replaced it with this awesome French maids apron, which happened to also be functional, but it meant that I just had so much more joy cooking. (laughs) It was a relatively small change, but to be wearing a French maids apron, just like, it, it, it had turn on for me and it had these other connotations while I cooked and sauteed dinner. And something else that I did, which I found really quite remarkable, is that while at the dinner table, I sometimes just ignored my husband and had my attention on my children. And more often, I just felt glad that he was a participatory, loving co-parent. Like I appreciated him as a father. 
And I really never before in the context of family life and sitting down to dinner with our four children, the six of us there, looking at him as a man, as an attractive man, as my husband that I shared a lot with. And our family life, you know, I just want to be really clear, like I'm talking about being completely appropriate, nothing explicit or overt or even implicit that the children would perceive. But when I would just connect with being a whole woman, maybe slightly moving my hips side to side while I sat at the dinner table and just lowering my voice and speaking more like I might on a romantic date, not necessarily in terms of topics discussed, maybe, maybe not, but more in terms of the feeling within me and the tone of my voice and kind of what I was radiating to have that feel more that way at the family dinner table. And the most amazing thing happened. My husband was more engaged and more relaxed and he clearly was nourished by it and then contributed more. And I think the big concern that most mothers have, and I did, is that if I put too much attention on my marriage, that it would kind of be sidelining the children, and I never wanted to neglect them at all. But instead, what I found is that the children were also calmer. There was more laughing at the table. There was less reminding of chewing with mouths closed and just <laughs> more, more presence. And so I really experienced how bringing the, the loveliness, a little bit more erotic energy into my everyday in my family life really benefited every single one of us, not just me and my husband. And I never would have known that unless I had researched it for myself. Yes. I mean, you really, you approached it like a physician with a scientific method. You had a hypothesis and you went for it and then you collected the evidence, which of course ended up um, making it into the book here, um, along with six other um, what you call uh, essential qualities of conscious partnership, which that, it, it, from my understanding, that's what you started doing with your husband was cultivating conscious partnership. Um, so, and I do, I also want to identify, um, Alexander, before we go further, you know, you talk about several different types of relationships. Um, you've got toxic termination, toleration, and of course you've got your blueprint for conscious partnership. Your book is really geared toward a certain type of couple or a certain type of relationship. Do you want to speak to that before we dive into some of the qualities that you may want to share with the audience? Yeah, and I want to start by defining conscious partnership. It's a kind of fun buzzword, but my definition of conscious partnership is it's a relationship where both people use the relationship as a vehicle for tr personal transformation. So I work on myself in the context of my relationship. And the other definition of conscious partnership is that it's a relationship where you learn to bring all of yourself to the relationship and you learn to love and be loved and love all of your partner as well, which means that no matter what arises 
it can be used to build more connection. So yes, the fun times can be used to build more connection, but so can conflict and wet laundry left in the washing machine. Like <laughs> all of this can be used to build more connection when you're in conscious partnerships. So I, I say that because my book and pursuing conscious partnership is really delicious and um, so fulfilling for couples who are both committed to the relationship and committed to their own personal growth. Without that, in a toxic relationship where there's anger and fear, these tools are not appropriate. They're really appropriate for people who love one another deeply and want to co-create and continue to improve their relationship. Maybe there's not much conflict, but it's not juicy. And so conscious partnership provides all of that. Uh, shall I go ahead now with the six qualities? Yes. Yes. Wherever, wherever you want to start with those, or whichever okay. ones you want to share. I've, I've highlighted some questions around several of them, but I'd rather hand it off to you and see where you want to go with it. Okay. Well, the first essential quality is to cultivate curiosity. And it's very easy when you're in a long-term relationship to feel like you know your partner, the conversations are predictable. If you ask a question, you know what the answer is going to be. And while that's true to some degree, what is the quickest, easiest pivot for any listener to implement today is to cultivate curiosity, ask open-ended questions, ask things you've never asked before, and then really listen to the responses. Ask what your partner daydreams about, or when you're, I just love this one, although I don't recommend starting with it, when your partner last told a white lie. And um, what are your partner's most important dreams and goals, or if, one thing could change about life. What would it be? And to really just make room for your partner to bring more of him or herself forward to share with you. And it takes practice. And if it's not part of your relationship culture, he or she might not be so forthcoming right away. But again, cultivate curiosity. It is so worthwhile. And then there's embrace honesty, learn to really tell what's true for you, to know it yourself and tell it, be yeah. kind. Oh. Can I stop you on embrace honesty and ask her? Yes, please. Yeah. So in embracing honesty, I love that you make a distinction between brutal versus vulnerable honesty honesty. Do you mind sharing a little bit more about what those mean? Because I think when people, you, you actually have this beautiful process about how to share vulnerably, honestly. Um, and it's actually, I've already recommended it to one of my clients, of course, with your credit to you, but, uh, that whole distinction between brutal versus vulnerable honesty, I think is important. Yeah. I think, I'm going to actually weave it in with be kind, which is the third quality, because many people, we all know that it's not good for a relationship to be a narcissist, to be self-centered and focused on your own needs only. But 
many of us have gone too far in the other direction, emphasizing being nice, where you really prioritize your partner's experience and needs as you perceive them over your own. I think it's so important to instead learn how to be kind because in being kind, you take into account both your experience, needs, desires, and your partner's as opposed to just your own, which would be narcissistic or just your partner's, which I call being nice. And so similarly, when it comes to embrace honesty, people who uh, sometimes hear it's, it's so important to be honest with your partner end up just saying everything <laughs> or just saying things in a way that gets it out but doesn't have attention on how it feels to the partner to hear this. And brutal honesty does not contribute to more connection. It contributes disconnection, pain, hurt, and um, complications. So in my experience, both personally and with my clients, you can actually say almost anything to your partner and if you do it with vulnerable honesty, you share with tenderness and how it really feels to you without being guarded or defensive or blaming, but just really share the reality with vulnerability, your partner can hear it. They might not be happy about the content, but there's something about hearing something that's shared with vulnerability that is so much easier to receive and then it contributes to connection. And I know exactly what you mean by this. I had this experience as I was doing some post-divorce healing with my ex-husband and this was part of what created the bridge for forgiveness in our men's process. But for those out there, can you give an example of what, what when you say sharing with vulnerability, what would an example of that be? Well, the method that I describe explicitly in the book is a three-part method and each part has a function that contributes to the vulnerability so the and the success of the communication the first part is to say to your partner i have something vulnerable or important or confronting or complicated whatever it is i have something challenging to share with you are you available to hear it and then that has to be a real question and if the partner says yes great or no, okay, you accept it, although if it's in a long-term committed relationship, no is really a form of not yet. But once both are opted in, that already improves the, the quality of the communication. And then the next thing is to say why you're choosing to share it. And so sometimes in more superficial communications, that's obvious, but with deeper things, it's important to do the work yourself to identify, you know, why are you sharing it? And then to say what your desired outcome is. And in choosing a desired outcome, it really needs to be a win-win for both of you. And I really learned this, I have to say, from my husband, who whenever I would bring something up, in principle, he wanted to hear it. We have a very growth-based relationship. However, in practice, he would feel attacked and ready to withdraw and defend. And once I started to say, 
what my purpose was and what my desired outcome was, our communications completely transformed because he's a goal-oriented person and he could totally align and collaborate in moving forward towards the goal that I had named. So an example applying this and also of making a communication vulnerably is when um, when my husband and I in in the evening we have a conversation he says yeah he'll he'll do the dishes he'll he'll clean up the kitchen after dinner and I don't have any more attention on it but then the next morning I get up and the dinner dishes are in the sink and so I might have in the past said, hey, you know, I thought you were going to do the dishes, which, you know, it's not terrible. It's not like pouring acid on him over it, but it's not very nice to hear either. But instead, I would now say, hey, are you available? I have something vulnerable to share with you. He'll say yes. And I'll say, I want to tell you because I just keep thinking about it and it's getting in the way of my feeling relaxed and connected with you. And my desired outcome is that once I tell you, we can actually have a really lovely evening tonight. And so he's going to be up for that. And then what I say is when you didn't do, when I got up and the dishes weren't done, I felt taken for granted and unseen and unvalued. It's not so much that, there were dirty dishes as much as that you didn't honor our agreement about it. And I feel like I'm unimportant to you. That was, that's an example of making mm -hmm. a communication with vulnerability as opposed to blaming or anger or criticism or superiority or any of the myriad of other ways I could have communicated about the dishes not being done that would have seemed perfectly logical and valid, but not right. vulnerable. Right. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So we were, let's see, we've gone, we've done uh, cultivating curiosity, embracing honesty, being kind. Uh, what comes next? Choose happiness. And that it's very important that that one isn't first because I am certainly not a fan of spiritual bypass or just putting a happy face on everything. But once you've really cultivated curiosity and practiced sharing your truth and being kind, then it's so important to be able to just choose happiness and let things go. But I don't mean bury them under the rug. I really mean internally pivot and let them go. And then there's take responsibility which is also very related to choosing happiness because you can take responsibility for your own experience. And often, kind of like with compromise, people think, oh, a good relationship, it's 50-50, and you need to meet me halfway. I don't think that's true at all. I think the really fantastic relationship comes when both people take 100% responsibility for the quality of that relationship. Yeah. Because anything less than that, the most important things beyond two standard deviations from the mean are likely to get dropped. Right. Yes, absolutely. And then the most fundamental quality, which I've referred to 
already is seek growth. The real prerequisite to all of the fulfillment and passion in a conscious partnership is dependent on both people having a growth mindset and believing that it's possible for each of them to change and being glad to do what it takes for that to happen. Yeah. And I just want to share a quote here because I loved the chapter on seeking growth. And this is in apparently folks had asked you, you know, what is the secret sauce in your relationship? And you would laugh and that was not just one thing, but in response, you say here in the book, the real answer is that the basis of our relationship is growth. And it always has been growth is energizing and exciting. We are devoted to our own growth and the growth of one another. We prioritize it individually and orient to it as the foundation for intimate relating and for stoking our passion. This means that consistently we are willing to make choices that prioritize our growth over everything else. We prioritize it over staying comfortable, over financial security, over fun, over appearances, and over the judgments of others. I just thought that's such a strong statement that that you prioritize it so high because as you point out in the book, you know, if you aren't growing, then you're dying. There's really no in between and you all have chosen growth. Yeah, and I think that that can sound sort of um, like poetic that if you're not growing, then you're dying. But I actually think it's quite literal. We can see it in nature where that's true. And often the decay process, it takes a long time. Let's say when there's a tree, it takes a long time before we can actually perceive it, but it has started long before. And I think that's true in relationships that if you're working on it and devoted to growth, then that radiates out and impacts everything in the relationship. And if you're not, and you close down and turn away from the discomfort of growth, that that doesn't necessarily show up immediately, but over time, there's rot from the inside. And I guess I just want to add, though, that I think of growth and the opposite of dying as very much a natural phenomenon like the seasons. So there are times of gestation and times of quiet. It's not like supercharged growth every moment. And I really want to emphasize that because having times of stillness and being clear that something just isn't ripe for receiving your attention is part of seeking growth. Yes. And, and with that, we are going to bring the show to a close. Um, to find out more um, about the six qualities, essential qualities for a conscious partnership, um, to get a copy of Uncompromising Intimacy, Turn Your Unfulfilling Marriage into a Deeply Satisfying, Passionate Partnership, um, you can go to alexandrastockwell.com, or of course the book is available on Amazon. Um, Alexandra, Dr. Stockwell, thank you so much for being on Sunny in Seattle today. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to give these tools to people because I think our whole world benefits when individual relationships are better. 
Yes, that was a point that I wanted to get to, but we ran out of time, but that's a perfect way to put it. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Sunny in Seattle. I am your host, Sunny Joy, and we will see you next week. Bye, everyone. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.